Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. Making, making contact. Making contact. Making, making, making contact. I'm Anita Johnson, and welcome to Making Contact. On this week's episode, we present White Hoax, Racism, Divide and Conquer, and Politics. Over a half century ago, James Baldwin, he said this. He said, people who imagine that history flatters them, as it does indeed since they wrote it. <laughs> See, before I even finish the sentence, let me just say, like, you, that was deep. Like, that is... That's like the best thing that's come out of my mouth. I mean, I could just like take the mic off and just, I don't, it's got a wire, but I could drop it theoretically. And I could just be done just with the first half of Baldwin's sentence. That's how, let me say it again and then we'll finish it up. People who imagine that history flatters them as it does indeed since they wrote it are impaled on their history like a butterfly on a pen and become incapable of seeing or changing themselves or the world. This is where it appears to me most white Americans find themselves impaled. They are dimly or perhaps vividly aware that the history they have fed themselves is mainly a lie, but they do not know how to be released from it, and they suffer enormously from the resulting personal incoherence. What is Baldwin saying? He's saying it so much better than most of us could, but what I gather he is trying to tell us is that if we do not understand the truth of how we got here, if we do not understand the predicate, that which came before, which brought us from point A to point B all the way down to whatever point we find ourselves at now, and if we have clouded and distorted that history for our own purposes, we not only cause great damage to others, we damage ourselves. We cannot be released from the lie. We are a people of the lie. And the quicker we understand that, the safer the world may be. That's anti-racism activist and author Tim Weiss. In his talk, Weiss explores the ways in which white privilege and fragility have shaped our nation's narrative around race and given way to the rise in white national hate speech and violence. Violence similar to the recent mass killing of 10 black people by a white supremacist in Buffalo, New York. We now begin with Weiss's examination of the 13 colonies to explore why the concept of whiteness was created and what he calls the psychological wage of whiteness. The history of this country is the history of rich white men telling not rich white people that their enemies are black and brown. That doesn't start with Donald Trump. That starts in the colonies. Right? In the middle of the 1600s, in the middle of the 17th century, when I beg to remind you there were no white people. I know that comes as a great shock to those who go by that name now, but there were no white people in the colonies. There were people of European descent, but we did not call ourselves that because we understood, did we not, that in Europe we were not all one big happy family. Right? White folks, European people, we didn't love each other. Right? The English hated the Irish, the Irish hated the English. 
Northern Italians didn't even think Southern Italians were Italians. The Germans hated everybody and everybody hated their ass right back. The history of Europe was a history of killing each other and trying to figure out who the witch was. That's pretty much European history in a thimble. So there were no white folks. We were not one big happy family, one big team, right? But all of a sudden there came a need for a white race. Why? Why did we suddenly need this concept that we had never needed before? That seems odd. What happened to necessitate this shift? Well, you know what happened. What happened is rich folks can count, right? And so those rich folks, take a second, it'll catch up with you. You know where I'm going with this. Rich folks can count. And the elite in the colonies of what would become the United States eventually looked around and they saw how outnumbered they were. They could count. They could see that when you took those African enslaved persons and added to them the number of European indentured servants, just one level above slaves themselves, and then when you added to them other European peasants who maybe were no longer indentured but nonetheless were poor and owned nothing, that they outnumbered the owners of the land and the property elite 10 to 1, 15 to 1, 20 to 1 in some communities. And if you're one of those elite, you start to wonder, don't you? My God, eventually they're going to figure out this scam and they're going to take our stuff. So we got to come up with something. We got to have a plan. What's our plan? Our plan is to create this thing, this fiction, this thing that never existed before called the white race and tell some of these poor European folks that they're part of it. Right? Make them part of the team. Make them think they're wearing the uniform. They're at the end of the bench. They ain't getting in the game, but at least they think they're on the team, see? And so all of a sudden, whiteness is created, and for that purpose, so as to diminish the possibility of cross-color, cross-racial rebellion, which we saw from time to time. Bacon's rebellion in 1676, others as well, that being the most prominent example. And in the wake of those rebellions, whiteness is born. And all of a sudden, people deemed and called white are given what? Land. Not much, just a little bit. Indentured servitude is abolished in the first few years of the 18th century. No more of that. And then they take the white men and they require that they serve on the slave patrol, right? What better way to get you on my team? Let me put you on a horse, give you a gun and a badge, make you think that you have some authority now. Even though I'm still controlling you, you're still not going to own anything. You're not going to run anything. But at least I can make you feel superior. I can give you what W.E.B. Du Bois many years later would call what the psychological wage of whiteness. The idea that you may not have much, but now at least you're not black. And the problem is if you're poor and white and you don't have any other currency, this will spend just fine. See, we act as if somehow white folks who are not economically privileged have no reason to go along with white supremacy. We say things like, why would they vote against their own interests? Because this country has told them this is their interest for 400 years. We've told them that. See, if you're rich, if you're rich, this is redundant. But if you are working class, lower income, and struggling, this right here is the coin of the realm. Know that. Right? And so Trumpism isn't new. It's a continuation of perfection in real time of something that's been going on a long time. Fast forward, 1850s, early 1860s. My people in the South say, my goodness, we have to break away from the Union. And see, in the day, we didn't really hide what that was about. We were very clear. We lie about it now. 
But back then, we didn't have any shame about it, so we just told the truth. We said the reason we wanted to break away from the Union was to preserve white supremacy and the institution of chattel slavery. It was Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, after all, who said that the cornerstone of that new government was the great truth that the Negro was not the equal of the white man. His words, not mine. He didn't talk about states' rights. He didn't talk about tariffs. He didn't talk about trade policy or economics. He was talking about white supremacy. But now here's the trick. If I'm one of the elite and I want to go to war to preserve my interest in human beings as property and you are poor and white and own no such person, what is your incentive to go fight for my stuff? See, that's hard, right? Why would you do that, right? Why would you fight to protect my stuff when you don't even own the very property that we're going to be fighting over? The way you do it is I come to you and I say, you got to go to war to protect our way of life. What do you mean our way of life? I don't own anybody. Yeah, but you see, if they get free, they're going to take your job. Oh, my God. Really? No, fool. They already got your job. That's the point, right? I mean, if you're white and you got to charge a dollar a day to work on the farm, to work in the blacksmith shop, to clean up the house, to build the levee, and they can get a black person to do it for free because they own them, guess who got the gig? Free got the gig. People like free, right? So in other words, the system of enslavement underbid the wage base of working class white people in the long run was against their interest. They would have been better off joining with black folks to overthrow that system, but the psychological wage of whiteness and divide and conquer and scapegoating worked. Fast forward to the 1930s, height of the labor union movement. Now you've got labor leaders, white. These aren't even the elite. This is just the elite within the labor movement, not even the real elite. But even they were falling for it and using it, weren't they? Because they were saying things like, well, we can't integrate our unions, my God. Because if we bring black people and we bring Mexican folk and we bring Chinese labor into these unions, it's going to reduce the professionalism of the working class. No fool, it'll double the size of your union which would probably be helpful when you go on strike. Because when you go on strike and you didn't bring those black and brown folks onto the line with you, guess who the boss is going to replace your happy ass with? The very people that you didn't want to work with in the first place. And then you're going to blame them and not the boss for taking your stuff. You see how this works? Hundreds of years of unbroken divide and conquer. That's what Trump tapped into. And it works. I got an email a couple years ago. And this kid writes to me maybe early 20s, you know, young adult, whatever, young dude, and he writes to me and says, and it's all in capital letters, so you know. Uh. <laughs> right? And he's yelling at me through the screen, just like yelling. Don't, like, if you, if you don't like me, you can keep the cap lock off. You don't have to do that, right? But he send, sends me this unhinged email. He says, I can't find a job because blacks and Mexicans are taking all the jobs. Really, all the jobs? Black folks and Mexicans, all the jobs, all the jobs, even though black folks and Latino folks have twice the unemployment rate roughly of white folks, even when they have college degrees, black folks with a college degree almost twice as likely as whites with a degree to be out of work, Latinos with a degree 50% more likely than whites with a degree to be out of work, Asian Americans with a degree 23% more likely than whites with a degree to be out of work. Our indigenous brothers and sisters, two-thirds more likely to be out of work, even with a degree relative to white folks. But they are taking all the jobs. Where the hell are they taking these jobs? Like a block and a half, and then they're like, I'm done with that. I mean, where are these jobs? And this is the same kid who one paragraph later says that he doesn't like blacks and Mexicans because they're lazy. All right, which is it? Because see, it cannot be both. I'm thinking that if you took all the jobs, you were like the opposite of lazy. 
And if you're truly lazy, I think you probably didn't even take one job, let alone all the damn jobs. I don't ask much of racists because I expect very little. But consistency is a must. I just don't like my racism to be in the form of a moving target. I just want people to stick on one stupid, ridiculous, racist stereotype at a time. Right? But that's what people fall for because they've been falling for it for 400 years. If we understand the dangers that we face and if we understand the way the past has brought us to this moment. See, we don't give enough attention to historiography, historical memory, understanding the connection between past and present. We like to hermetically seal away the past in our history classes, right? And then we teach history in a way that doesn't draw these connections because when you take history classes in school, it's just chronological, right? It's not thematic. We're not learning the way that themes reassert themselves. We're not learning the way that the past affects the present because they're all disembodied dates and names and battles and founding fathers and all of this. But if you don't understand what came before, you can't understand what's happening right now, whether it's with Trumpism or anything else. Of all the roles that I embody in the world as an educator, an activist, uh, every now and then a scholar, though I don't really pretend to be that, parent is perhaps the most important of those to me. I have two daughters, and when they were 12 and 10, or as the kids like to say, 12 and a half and 10 and a half. Because that extra six months is very important if you don't know. When they were 12 and 10, um, we were headed to the dance studio where they were in a dance company this one particular afternoon after school. And the dance studio was downtown in Nashville. Their school's about eight minute drive by Surface Street to the, to the studio. And so we're making this drive one day. And this is a drive we've made probably every day during the school year for over a year at that point. But on this one particular day, something very unique and different happened. We were stopped at a red light about halfway to the studio. And this red light happened to be located in the middle of a public housing development, right on both sides of the street, public housing. And we're sitting there waiting for the light to turn green. The younger of my two children, Rachel, sitting in the back seat, looks around. And I'm sure she had noticed this interesting fact of demographics before. But on this particular day, she decided to ask about it. She says, Daddy, why is this neighborhood pretty much all black? Now, that is a damn good question, right? I mean, that is one heavy sociological inquiry. My 10-year-old is doing urban anthropology in the backseat of my Toyota, and I'm so proud, right? And what, I wasn't just proud, I was actually really relieved because that is like the one question my kids could ask me that I actually know the answer to, right? Because like when you're a parent, there are those moments when your kids ask you stuff and you don't have a clue, right? Like if they had said, Daddy, where does electricity come from? I would have, I do. <laughs> Google it. I don't know. It has something to do with circuitry. Beyond that, I'm lost, right? But you asked me about the racial dynamics of a neighborhood. I actually know that. Right? So I was really happy. I was really happy, very proud of myself, knew that I got the answer. It's right here. It's right here in my throat. I'm ready to give the answer. But then this thing happened. It was something I did not know was going to happen because I am an only child. But apparently, <laughs> some of you will know this, apparently, when you have a younger sibling who is asking a question of a parent in the presence of an older sibling, inevitably and without fail or very much hesitation, the older sibling will offer up their own answer as a way to impress the parent in the presence of the younger child. I did not know that this was a thing. 
Apparently, it is a thing. So as I'm about to give the answer, about to inform my child of the one thing that I actually know in the world, she says, I remind you once again, why is this neighborhood pretty much all black? The 12-year-old Ashton leans in and says, redlining, which is scary accurate, by the way. And I was like, what? Like, have you been reading my books or... Like, who are you? Like, like, is it genetic? Do you just know stuff? Like, what was that? And the 10-year-old says, yeah, I don't know what that means. And I said, yeah, I don't think your sister does either, but that was one hell of a guess, right? And now here's the thing. I do want to, you know, for those who don't know, right, redlining was a practice that, just real quick recap, was, was a perfectly normative practice in this country, legal, as a matter of fact, up until 1968 when the Fair Housing Act was passed. Banks would just take red markers and draw around lines on maps any black neighborhood and anyone who lived in that neighborhood. Also, this happened in certain Puerto Rican neighborhoods and places like New York City. Anyone who lived in the borders of that neighborhood was not getting a loan. You weren't getting a mortgage loan, you weren't getting a business loan, you weren't getting an equity loan to expand your business if you already owned one. And it was a way to essentially choke neighborhoods from having capital, right? And this was done for years, for decades, for generations, and even after the Fair Housing Act was passed, it continued informally, right? The best evidence we have says there are three to maybe four million cases of race-based housing discrimination still happening every year, uh, at least a couple million of those in the mortgage market. So it's not like it doesn't happen anymore, but it was formal. It was absolutely legal for a very long time. And so what happens is if you deny capital to people in certain neighborhoods, you're going to guarantee that they will be low income. You are going to deny them the possibility of building or accumulating any kind of wealth or assets or businesses or anything like that. Now, the reason that it became black related to the reason it became poor, but the part that my daughter didn't quite know, so I had like three minutes left before we're at the studio, so I'm like, okay, here we go, right? is because at the very same time that government was and banks were collaborating to redline neighborhoods and keep them from having capital, they were also doing some other things. Let's recall, first of all, that public housing was created for white people. Most people don't know that history, right? But in the first several years of public housing, people of color couldn't even get into it. It was for white working class folks alone. It was created so as to give them a foothold in the economy in the years of the Great Depression. But at the very same time the government creates public housing, they also create some other stuff, don't they, that allows white folks to not only leave public housing, but to leave the cities altogether. They create the FHA loan program, later on the VA loan program, the GI Bill, and these things, even though they were theoretically open to everyone in practice, were not. 98% of all the FHA loans from 1934 to 62 were given to white families, people of color virtually excluded from them, and so you have these government-guaranteed, government-backed, in effect, government-subsidized loans that build the white middle class in the 1940s, in the 1950s, in the early 1960s. So you had white folks able to hustle it out to the suburbs where only we could live, Right? With all of this newfound wealth made possible by the government, at the same time black and brown folks are locked in the cities, unable to move into those spaces, and unable to access those government subsidized loans in the spaces where they do live, or conventional private loans from the banks that were redlining them. And now we're at the studio and the lesson is over. And the kids seemed to understand it. And as I drove away, there was part of me that was like, God, I hope that made sense. And it seemed to, you know, but the more important thing was I was so glad that my child asked the question. And I was so glad that I had at least a thumbnail sketch of an answer for her because ask yourself this, what happens if she asks that question and I don't know the answer? What happens if a child asks you and you don't? 
What happens when we as a country don't know how the past brought us to the present? You know what happens? That child still continues to wonder, right? But that child, not given a sociological imagination or a historical perspective by a parent or a teacher, comes to their own conclusion, don't they? You think they're not going to come to a conclusion? No, they will. They will default to the only conclusion they possibly can in this culture. What is that? The only possible conclusion they can reach is that these people live here like this because there's something wrong with them. Because the operative ideology of our country, the creation myth of our country, the foundational secular gospel of our country, Genesis 1-1 of our country, is the idea that wherever you end up is all about you. So if you made it, it's because you deserve to make it. If you didn't make it, there's something wrong with you. The idea of meritocracy, of rugged individualism, that you get out what you put in. If you are taught that, and we were all taught that in some way, shape, or form by this culture, if you are taught that and then you look around like my children and you see the disparity with your own eyes, you don't have to be a sociologist, you don't have to be an anthropologist, you just have to be awake. And you look around and you see the inequalities and you have a country that tells you that those inequalities come from merit or the decided lack thereof, then you have a default position of racism and a default position of sexism if you see men disproportionately here and women disproportionately here, a default position of classism and a deference to capital because you see rich here and you see poor here. In other words, if we're going to undo white supremacy, we can't see it as a divergence from American tradition. We have to understand that it is woven into the founding ideology of the country, and unless we interrogate that ideology of meritocracy and individualism, we have no chance to upend it. Know that more than anything. If you don't understand that past and how it created the inequalities that you see, you can't possibly fight those inequalities. You won't even try. You'll justify them. You'll rationalize them as legitimate, as natural, as the result of either biological or perhaps cultural superiority or inferiority, right? Just like if you don't understand the history of law enforcement abuse in people of color communities, Black Lives Matter won't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense, right? Because if you think that the history of law enforcement in black and brown space is similar to the history of law enforcement in white space, you wouldn't understand the importance of articulating black lives matter. So you would say stuff like all lives matter because well, what about me? What about my life matters? You don't have to tell me that all lives matter. I got children, man. I know their lives matter. I know my daughter's lives matter. I certainly don't need anybody else to tell me. The difference is every cop in this country knows their lives matter. Every teacher in this country knows their lives matter. Every employer knows their lives matter. Every bank loan officer knows that their lives matter and their credit record doesn't. See, I know that white lives matter. They're already taken for granted. You don't have to articulate that which is assumed. You don't have to specify that which has always been included. You need only specify that which has been left out. But if you don't know the history of how certain folks have been left out of the word all, then the movement won't make sense. See, but black and brown folks know a little bit about this history. They know, for instance, that white people have a long history of saying all and not meaning it. To wit, Thomas Jefferson, who I gather is one of white people's favorite white people, Thomas Jefferson said, not necessarily y'all, but now some of them. Thomas Jefferson said, did he not? He said, these are his words, not mine. 
He said, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But now when he wrote those words, he owned over 250 other human beings, so I think he might have not meant it. And when the Pledge of Allegiance was written, the first one in the 1880s, and then it was updated, keep in mind, it was updated in the 1920s and again in the 30s and again in the early 1950s, but every iteration of it, the last line was always the same, with liberty and justice for who? For, who? for all, there's that word again, all, said by white folks who clearly did not mean it. And so if we have a history of saying all and leaving some folks out, we're just going to have to understand when black folks remind us that they are part of that word, and until they are considered and believed to be part of that word, they're going to specify so that we know that black lives matter. But if you don't, <laughs> income, occupation, wealth is all about your own effort. Remember what I said, that's Genesis 1-1, wherever you end up is all about you. Now, if you're black or brown, even though you've been exposed to that, you've also been exposed to some counter-narratives. If you're a person of color, you at least know enough to know it's not quite that simple. I'm not saying that people of color never fall prey to it, but for most people of color in this country, they hear that and they go, yeah, but nah, nah not really, right? But the thing is, white folks actually have had the luxury of believing it, right? Even the working class white guy working in a coal mine in West Virginia had the luxury historically of believing in horizontal mobility, if nothing else. What is horizontal mobility? It's the ability to say, well, my granddaddy worked in the mine, my daddy worked in the mine, I work in the mine, my son's going to work in the mine, by God, because as long as you're strong and can lift stuff, you'll always have work. See, no black person in this country ever had the luxury of assuming that. No person of color in America ever assumed that just because they worked hard, they'd have a job. Black and brown folks have been working hard since the dawn of time, certainly since the dawn of this country and yet know that they have very little to show for it in an awful lot of cases. So people of color always had that BS detector that allowed them to realize it was more complicated. But for the vast majority of white Americans, even the ones who were struggling, even the ones who were struggling, there was the luxury of believing if I just double down on my work effort, at least my kids will be better off than I was. And their kids will be better off than them. And their kids will be better off than them. Again, people of color never had the luxury of believing in that America. But white folks did. And now what happens if you've come to believe it? And then all of a sudden, the economy changes right, and goes global. And now some of your jobs are superfluous. And what if all of a sudden, the owner of the coal mine realizes he doesn't need as many coal miners because he can just take dynamite and blow the top off a mountain to get at the coal. And so now you're superfluous. Now your job is an anachronism. See, people of color know what it is to have to hustle up the next gig. People of color know what it is to not have any kind of economic security or an assumption of a future. But white folks have come to expect that. So white expectationalism has been one of the biggest privileges of all, right? The privilege of believing that tomorrow would be brighter than today just because it has to be. But if I believe that and then all of a sudden I find myself out of work for 26 weeks, out of work for 52 weeks, out of work for 99 weeks, unable to pay health care for my kids, afford my kids college education, I don't know where to put that. Because remember, I have come to believe that wherever I end up is all about me. So now I'm internalizing the shame, am I not? I'm internalizing the blame, am I not? And i got to find somewhere to put that. And then a politician comes along and he says, I can take your pain. And more than that, I can tell you who's to blame for it because it's not you. See, when those people in that part of town, when they're out of work, that is their fault. But when you're out of work, it's also their fault. Right? How much more true is it for people who always had high expectations? 
See, because some folks only had expectations lifted over four or five years, and then they popped off, you know, when things didn't work out. But if you've told me for 400 years that it's going to work out, and then it doesn't, I'm either going to take you out or I'm going to take me out. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is that white people, working class white people, struggling white folks have a personal self-interest in ending this lie of white supremacy and meritocracy. We have to join with black and brown folks who have always known the truth, learn to listen to the truths that they speak because those truths might save our lives. See, this is not charity work. Right? If white folks are doing anti-racism work to save black and brown folks, we need a new hobby. This is not charity work. This is solidarity work. This is radical self-help work that we have to do for us. People of color will liberate themselves from white supremacy ultimately with or without us, but who's going to liberate us from white supremacy? It's surely not black folks' job. But in the midst of all this pain, there is good news. We have models for this. We know what to do if we're just willing again to look to history, see? Understanding the past to understand the present. You've been listening to White Hoax, Racism, Divide and Conquer and Politics on Making Contact. To learn more about us and access other episodes for free, you can always visit us at radioproject.org. I've been your host, Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.